We are so lucky. Amen. 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 And you're all ours. Yeah. Oh, steady on. It's the Holy Spirit. Just kidding. I would say it's my Pentecostal coming out, but I'm Catholic. I guess I've been hanging out with you for too long. Awesome. Jesus, we are grateful. I am grateful. I am grateful for this church, and I'm grateful for this man who is my friend and my leader. He loves you, and he is so committed to finding out your truth and your word for our community in this season. He's constantly pursuing what it is that you have for us as a community, and I thank you for that. I ask that you would bless that today. I pray that you would just pour it out like a tap and that you would encourage us and inspire us and help us tune in. Help us to just set aside everything else that's going on in our lives. Turn off those phones, turn off those brains and be able to tune in to what it is that you have for us today through your servant Gordy who loves you. Ask your blessing on him in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, this Canucks Autism Network seminar that uh, we're bringing is right in the flow of our theme of a sustainable outward focus. And in the spirit of that, we're offering this. And I just thought when we all clapped for the Canucks Autism Network, I just felt this inspiration to just say, go Canucks. And I felt that for Gordy Gibosh. Yeah. He's a Flames fan, so we'll minister to him later. Um, so I want to introduce today but with a tale of two C's that I grew up with as a child in church. And probably my mom and dad were the first to, to tell me this, this uh, tale. But many of you will recognize this map of Israel in the Palestinian area of the Middle East. And... Uh, how many heard this, that there were two C's? Remember, the, there, was the, there was the Sea of Galilee and the Sea of the Dead Sea, they called it. And it was the Dead Sea because there was no life in it. How many have been there? Anybody been there? It's actually true. You can read on your back. You can float on your back and read a book. It's so full of salt that you can just float, and we've done that. I don't know if we had a book, but we definitely did. Did we bring our book, our iPhone out there? No. Um, and um, there's no living thing, and what I was told as a child is there's a river called the Jordan River that flows from the, Gola, uh, the heights, uh, Mount Hermon, into the, the Sea of Galilee, and it flows into it, and then it flows out of it, and there's... All, kind, all kinds of communities and life and um, thriving business because of the abundance of fish and life in this, in this sea, in this lake. And this river continues its course down into the Dead Sea. And in the Dead Sea, it's just literally dead. There's nothing living except maybe a little tourist resort. Um, the dates of Engedi are quite famous nearby. But in the, the sea itself, it's, it's dead. And I was always told it's because there's no outlet. So the, the Jordan empties in, 
but there's no way to flow out. And the high salt content, the lowest sea level on earth, they're not sure what kind of geographic incidences happen, happen there. But you can just see here, uh, it was just, uh, I was told over and over again that unless there is an outflow, the inflow, inflow will result in death. And of course, last year we talked a lot about the importance of that inflow, making sure that there's that inflow for life as well. But both are true. When we think about a sustainable outward focus, we need to realize that being outwardly focused is actually part of sustainability. Did you get that? In other words, uh, keeping in view our mission. The second thing I want to say in this introduction is to remind you of a story that John Wimber told, and you'll find it in his testimony video where he'd been traveling all over North America and beyond teaching on church growth, and he was burning out. And he was so burned out when he... you remember this story? He was so burned out when he arrived at this hotel late at night that all he could do was just get on his knees by his bed and put his head down. And he, he'd read this psalm that said, Oh God, my, my soul is desolate. And he somehow crawled into bed a little bit later and was laying there. And he said he fell asleep. And all of a sudden, he was awakened by almost an audible voice. And this was really, I think, the birth of the vineyard. And the Lord said to him, I've seen your ministry. And then there was this pause like, eh. <laughs> now I'm going to show you mine. I've seen your ministry. Now I'm going to show you mine. And part of sustainability in an outward focus for us is recognizing there is no ministry except the ministry of, of Christ, God's ministry. And all we do is we participate. We're partners in that ministry, doing what the Father's doing, Jesus said, is, it was his ministry. And so today I want to look at what Jesus' ministry was because it's important for us understanding our ministry in partnership with him. From a text in Luke that's called Jesus Magna Carta, many people call it, when he stood up in Nazareth and read uh, the text from Isaiah. Of course, the Magna Carta originally was the great charter of English liberties that came out in the 12th hundreds, and it came basically to mean any fundamental constitution or law guaranteeing rights and freedoms. So this is Jesus, Magna Carta, and our text is from the book of Luke chapter 4, which has been kind of the Magna Carta of the vineyard. So it's, it's very in keeping with the Wimber's story for us to be teaching on this today, which is actually part of our lectionary. So things are lining up. And great worship set, Lynn, because that basically preached my sermon already. So um, Jesus returned to Galilee from where? Does anybody remember the context there? In summary, where had he been? In the desert, right? In the wilderness. So it says in the wilderness, at, and what was before the wilderness? Anybody remember that? Get the sequence here. Sally? Baptism. So we're in, we're in Epiphany, right? We're in the season of Epiphany of God's revealing and unveiling. And what happened at Jesus' baptism? Significance was he heard the Father's voice. He heard that who he was, that he's the beloved of God, God's beloved Son. But then there was this visible sign in the form of a dove of 
the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. And you can't read Luke. And by the way, as I, I want to remind you that Luke is probably the only Gentile author of Scripture. Every other author was Jewish. But Luke is Gentile. I like him because I'm a fellow Goyim like Luke. And he has this eye for inclusiveness. And everybody matters to God. He's, got, he's always saying it's not just the men, but the women. It's not just the poor, not just the rich, but the poor. It's not just the powerful, but the weak. Not just the adults, but the children. And you see this, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. And you see that as he writes the book of Acts. He's also, in fact, Luke Acts is, is recorded regarded by, by a lot of scholars as one book. And in the book of Acts, you see this theme of the Holy Spirit coming through. And so he, re, he went from the waters of baptism into, listen to the language, into the wilderness filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Luke says. He returns from the wilderness in the power. I'm, uh, Joanna mentioned the Pentecostal part of me. Can I just say it like a Pentecostal? Yeah, go for it. In the power <laughs> of the Holy Spirit. And my dad, who likes to listen to my podcasts, will re remind you that the work for, word for power is the word dunamis, where we get the word Dynamite, where the word dynamite comes from, all right? So Jesus returned in the power, in the dunamis of the Holy Spirit, and that's a word Luke likes. Does anybody else remember where else Luke used that word? On his ascension, in the end of the book, Luke chapter 24, verse 49, tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with Come on, say it like a Pentecostal. Power from on high. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But tarry in Jerusalem for the promise of my Father, which he has promised you. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized, waterlogged, soaked, inundated, sprayed with a fire hose, soaked in the ocean. With the Holy Spirit, not many days from now, for, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be, not you will try to be, or you will work at it, or you will take a navigator's, you know, four spiritual laws course. No, you will be witnesses unto me. When the Spirit of God touches you, you can't help it. You don't need to try. It just is. You're just a witness. You're evidence that God is alive, that Jesus is risen from the dead when you're endued with his power. This was Luke's message, and it just it's through all of his writings and ministries, the work of the Holy Spirit. How many times the, the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, and Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit, preached in Ephesus, and Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, declared the, the word to the Sanhedrin, this, just filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're called to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we need to keep on being filled. The tense in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, is be not drunk with wine. Don't, don't 
Don't be tempted to, to uh, deal with your pain inordinately with, with medication. Medication is good. I, it blessed me. I recovered from a nervous breakdown with medication. But don't avoid what the pain is saying to you. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the tense is keep on being filled. And as I've said over and over again, why? Because we leak. Right? We leak. So we need to keep on getting filled. You know, you know, you know what leaking looks like for me? I'm walking through the neighborhood filled with the Holy Spirit, glory of God all over me. And a driver doesn't stop for me when I'm crossing the walk. And the old finger comes out. No, no, not quite. Just in my head. And, I, every, and, I, and all of a sudden I realize, oh my gosh, I just leaked. I got to get filled up again. <laughs> you like that, don't you, Ron? All right. So. <laughs> oh, excuse me. I am coming to your party. I wouldn't miss it for the world. So the word for spirit is breath, wind. How many have ever, you know, one time I was drive, walking down a, a pedestrian walk in Calgary, and this cyclist was ringing his bell saying, get out of the way, get out of the way. This is back in the 80s. We're in a different era now. And he was going so fast. And, and I, did, I froze, and I didn't know where to go, this way or this way. And all of a sudden, bam. And I was, next thing I knew, I was on the ground, and I couldn't breathe. And all I'm doing is, oh. You ever had the wind knocked out of you? And I'm just going, ah! Is that enough? Okay. It was quite a while, all I remember. I found out later he got the worst of it. Trying not to smile. Um. <laughs> Okay, I'm not totally sanctified yet. But he got the worst of it. And, uh, and so it took me a while for that wind, that breath to come back. But life's like that, isn't it? You ever had that happen in life? We just get the wind knocked out of you. And you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the beautiful news about the Holy Spirit. So he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So Luke does this amazing summary of Jesus' ministry. Remember that he was in Cana of Galilee, turned the water into wine. Oh, I wish I could have been there. And then uh, he was in Jerusalem, and he cleansed the temple. So a lot of things have already happened in Jesus' life and ministry, and he's become famous. So why does Luke pick this passage, this place, this setting for Jesus to give his Magna Carta. Why does he choose Nazareth? What's the reason for that? Because Jesus has obviously preached this sermon many times already. This is not the first time he's preached this sermon or used this text he's about to use. I just want to leave that question out for you. Think about it. So he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day... He went into the synagogue, as was his custom. That's an interesting phrase. Jesus attended church regularly. 
We don't, we don't think about that, do we? It says, as was his custom. He went into the synagogue and he took part in church. So he stood up to read. Now, let me just explain the synagogue. The Jews had the belief that the temple was the meeting place between heaven and earth. Remember the Garden of Eden? We were ejected from the garden through our sin. The temple was filled with all kinds of imagery, artistry about leaves and vines and plants. And you see that all over. And it's kind of like this longing for us to return to Eden and this hope that God would redeem and restore and that heaven and earth would meet again in this temple. And of course, they were now, they had now, that temple had been destroyed. And they'd been scattered all over the earth. And so they began to see the Torah, the law, and the prophets as the, the meeting point, the kind of the temporary meeting point for heaven and earth while the temple was being restored. And even now they still felt that their temp they felt that they were in exile. They felt that their temple was a compromise because it was kind of built by the Gentiles and, and the, the leadership were corrupt. And so there was just this, this kind of dissonance that they were feeling. So the synagogue became the replacement temple. And in the synagogue, there was two, two sections like here. The men would sit on one side, the women on the other. The synagogue would be open and that end, and it, the synagogue would always be pointed on that end towards Jerusalem. No matter where it was built, the synagogue was always built in that direction. At the front of the synagogue was a box. What did the box represent? In the temple, it was... The ark. And what was in the ark? The law, right? So what did they put in the box in the synagogue? A scroll. That's right. So, so the synagogue usually had an administrator. This administrator, when a guest would show up, like Paul, remember when Paul would travel around and preach? He'd often be asked, Paul went to church too, he'd often be asked to read the text. And they had two texts that they would read from, two scrolls. And, and somebody had to, you know, roll it like this and roll it like this to get to the place you wanted. And the, the law, they would read from the Torah, which is one of the five first books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, was, was scripted just like our lectionary is. It was, there was always a set reading. But for the prophets, they would read also a scroll from the prophets. It was often discretionary. A, a person could say, I'd like to read from here today. So it was a little bit of both and there. So Jesus, it says he looked for and found. It doesn't say he looked for it, but it says he stood up to read. And the scroll of the Isaiah the prophet was, handing, was handed to him. And rolling it, he found the place where it was written. So it's, it implies that he looked. He found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me me to proclaim good news to the poor. So what is, who's talking here? Who's, who, what's the context? It's Jesus reading, but what's the context? What's the, the actual text that he found? Well, for those of you that are familiar with scripture, and these Jews would have been, it's the comfort section of Isaiah. How many have read Isaiah? It's that Old Testament, big book, it's a great book, but the first part's kind of hard, isn't it? A lot of gloom and doom, and I'm going to smash you to bits and scatter you all over the earth. And You know, God just sounds pretty angry, you know, in the first, first half. The second half is totally different. It's all about compassion and comfort and, and grace and 
it's this section that this particular passage comes from. And it's to a people who are in exile. It's to people who've been, been uh, dispossessed of their homeland. They've been exiled to other parts of the earth. Now they're starting to return, but things haven't turned out like they thought. There's, there was the initial euphoria. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah when they came and rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem and the walls were rebuilt? But they realized that after a while, things just aren't the same anymore. I mean, Haggai prophesied that the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. This house sucks. Like, it, it just, it was just not good. Little did they know that the glory of the latter house was talking about Jesus and the establishment of the kingdom of God. But they just saw it through their, their, their eyes. And it was very disappointing. And so these were people who were disillusioned. What does disillusion mean? Disillusioned. What does illusion mean? Hmm? Illusion is a, what you see, right? It's talking about seeing. Disillusion is lost vision, lost hope, disappointment. And sadness, brokenhearted, tragedy. And they knew that this particular quotation was by a mysterious person who appears in these latter chapters of Isaiah, the comfort section, called the servant of the Lord, almost with a capital S, the servant of the Lord. And he, he shows up early in the 40s, which is kind of where, remember Isaiah 40, comfort, oh comfort my people. This servant shows up in Isaiah 42, where, where Yahweh says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. There's the spirit again, eh? Here's another one. God again speaking to this servant, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind. Does that sound familiar? To free captives from prison. Does that sound familiar? And to release from dungeons those who sit in darkness. Does that sound familiar? Who is this person? Well, Israel didn't know. They began to think, well, maybe it's Messiah. Maybe it's the one, the coming one. Good news was very prominent in this passage of Isaiah. When Jesus said, I've come to bring good news to the poor, they were familiar with that language. What's the good news for a lot of people today? Well, you know, we're bad and Jesus was good, so God spanked Jesus instead of us so we can go to heaven. But friends, this is way before this ever happened. So what is the good news? You who bring good news to Zion, go on up to the high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice. This is hundreds of years before Jesus. With a shout, lift it up, don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. What's the good news? God is here. Here's some more. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. What's the good news? God reigns. 
So when Jesus came and he preached the good news of the kingdom, he hadn't died on the cross yet. He hadn't risen from the dead yet. But he still preached the good news of the kingdom. What was that good news? The reign of God is here. The presence of God is here. The power of God is here. Yes, his death resurrection was important and a critical part of it. But the, the good news was much more expansive than that. And finally, he was a servant, suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by humanity, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him low. And anybody that's read the whole chapter knows that's a description of Jesus' death on the cross there. So, there's this mystery person, maybe the Messiah. But Israel began to see themselves as the suffering servant, corporately. They began to see themselves as a people, as being that suffering servant. So, so hold all that in the context of this passage as Jesus elaborates. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. That word anointed, remember... We Pentecostalize that a lot. He's anointed. No, 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 no. Anointed member is when, when the priest was going to be a priest, they'd pour oil on him. Or a king was going to be a king, the prophet would pour oil on him, like Samuel with David. Sometimes they'd even anoint prophets. Isaiah, Elisha was anointed. Anointing means commissioned and empowered. And every one of you are called and anointed. By God. And the, of course the oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit again, right? But he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and set the oppressed free. There's one phrase that's missing here that some translations have. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And it's my theory that the poor here it's not just the, you know, immediately we think of the panhandler over here on Hastings, or we think of the downtown east side, and of course that is poverty. But the word is a lot more expansive to include these. It's like this is an elaboration. Oh, what do I mean by poor? Well, I mean these. I mean the brokenhearted. I mean the blind. I mean the oppressed. They're all the poor. It's the marginalized in our society. It includes economic injustice, but it's more than that. For the downtown east side and a lot of what we're dealing with are, yes, there is a housing shortage and, and there are economic issues and I don't want to downplay that, but we know that a lot of what we see in the downtown east side has to do with mental illness and drug addiction and mental illness. And there's about an 80% overlap between drug addiction and, and mental illness. It's called dual diagnosis. And I, my theory is it's probably even higher. It's just those who've actually been diagnosed. So those who are marginalized are those who suffer mental illnesses, schizophrenia, psychosis, depression, bipolar. These are the poor that Jesus came to proclaim good news to. I think it includes immigrants and refugees that struggle. They're starting, they were doctors and lawyers in other countries and they fled persecution and they're, they're starting all over. And I hear their stories and it just makes me weep. Now they're just serving breakfast at Tim Hortons. 
You know, they're starting all over again. First Nations, indigenous people, the missing women. Have, have, you, have you read the stats lately? The disproportionate amount of, of missing women in the aboriginal communities, the, the indigenous communities, the, the poverty, the, the drinking water situation, the few, the still relatively few who still graduate compared to the rest of the culture, the life expectancy. What's wrong with that picture? It's called oppression. It's called injustice. And Jesus came to preach good news to them. Children in foster care who are immediately traditionally been kicked out of the system when they reach 19 years of age, 18 years of age. LGBTQ people. Nobody wakes up one morning saying, you know, I think I want to be gay. Or I want to be transgendered. I've listened to their stories. You know the hell that they walk through. I've read their stories. Nobody wakes up saying, oh, I really want to do this. And the percentages of people who commit suicide and suffer depression and have been bullied in that community. I believe Jesus came to bring good news to them. Persons with dis physical disabilities, families, and Joanna mentioned earlier, people that, are, that, people that have family, families that have individuals in their family that are on the spectrum. And, and the article that she was referring to that I read in the summer was I was shocked because I know what we struggled with as a church for a couple of, you know, for a number of years. We struggled in our kids program and how to integrate into community. And, and I read this article where just, Across the board, across Canada and United States, families have just given up on church. They just said, we can't do church. It's too embarrassing. We feel like we're failures as parents. i got good news for you. Jesus came to proclaim good news for you. And we're meant and called to be a church that's good news for those in the margins like this. And that's why we're doing this workshop next week. The uh, family marginalization. I was listening about gene pools and sperm donations and what, it, what happens in families and blended families and marginalization that happens that way on the radio this week. And just just uh, family tragedies. This, this, this stuff, sometimes I just can't even read the paper. I, I still read the paper. I'm sorry. I'm still a paper reader. But sometimes I just have to pay, put the paper down, I put my head on the table, and I just weep what people walk through. And every day we walk by them, don't we? And some of us are them. The tragedy, the tragedies of sickness, disease, cancer, accidents. We live in a broken and fallen world, but Jesus said, I came to heal the brokenhearted. I came to bring good news, recovery of sight, and this proclamation of good news means there's no blame or shame. See, these people that were in, in exile, they still carried this stigma that it's our fault. Generations later, it's our fault that we're all screwed up, that we're still in this mess. And Jesus said, that day is over. It's done. 
The word release is the same word that's often used for forgiveness. It means it just, it's like letting an animal free, like just untying it and letting it go. And it's like Jesus says, that day is over, that day of shame and what ifs and should have and could have and would have. That day is over. It's a new day. It's a day of favor. It's a day of jubilee. Time to set the oppressed free. There's good news for all. There's enough power in what he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection that we all get in, that nobody's excluded or marginalized. And then he goes on to say this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, right now, everybody's going, yes, praise the Lord. So beautiful, nice sermon. Thank you, Jesus. Like, literally, thank you, Jesus. Verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Kabam! Everything changed. Because they're so used to, yes, one day Messiah will come. Or, oh, back in the good old days when we had Moses. David, but for someone to say, today, whoa. And of course, the year, the year of the Lord's favor was a reference to Jubilee, which was a 50-year a celebration in Israel that they never did end up keeping, but it was every 50 years where God said, you know, some of you have gotten into debt, so you've had to be slaves in order to pay off your debt. Some of you had to give up your traditional territory of land as a family. And, and you've lost land, guess what? You get it all back today. So their land was restored, slaves were set free, debts were canceled. That's a good year. And the whole, pre, the whole gospel message is in the context of the year of Jubilee. Now, we need to understand the Jewish worldview. When Jesus is saying today is the scripture is fulfilled, their worldview was like this. They had an, what we call a two-age view. Whoa, you like that? Uh, they had a two-age... I can do that again. Ooh. So they had a two-age two view of the world. There was the present age where evil reigns. There's no Holy Spirit, except for the odd exception here and there, and just injustice. And so the, the, their posture was circle the boats, circle the wagons, rather. Circle the wagons. And... It's survival, and it's, it's, it's us and them. They're the bad guys, and we're the good guys. And we're just going to hang on till, G, till, till, till Messiah comes. That was their, their view. It was like survival. But then Messiah would come on the day of the Lord. Let's do it again. The day of the Lord, bam. And then God's just going to kick their butt. He's just going to get rid of the bad guys. And we're going to have the Holy Spirit and the world is going to make, be made right. And, and they wore their mega hats. You know what the mega hats are? Make Israel great again. Right? They wore their mega hats and Israel would be a world power. Right? And the nations would, would know God is God. That, that was their world worldview. So Jesus comes and he begins to announce, along with John the Baptist and the, and the apostles, the, the kingdom of God's here. The reign of God is here. And they're going, what? 
And, and they got pretty excited at first because the sick were healed, the dead were raised, but then they realized the Romans are still here and they're still, they're still you know, colonizing us. And there's still people dying, and Lazarus got healed, but he still died eventually. So what's, what gives? So with the New Testament message, and this is important for us for sustainability, is there was this understanding of an invasion of the future into the present. The now, but the not yet. The future kingdom of God has come now, but it's in an already not yet capacity. And there's, I could preach forever. Well, I just end it with that. I could preach forever about why this is. But it's, it's this age of grace. It's this age of space where God has taken this incredible risk and saying... I am going to make the world right, but I'm not going to do it apart from my people. I'm going to do it with you, busted and broken and messed up as you are. You're going to be part of this recreation, renewal of all things project. I'm not going to do it without you. Sorry. I'm going to do it with you. But the pain of that is we see so much of the not yet. That's the hard thing. And to be honest... From November to December to January, all I see most of the time is the not yet. It gets really, really hard. And you, you tend to default to the not yet. It, and you get back to where the Jews were, where it's this, we're just kind of just hanging there. The whole world sucks. And the hard thing is to keep doing what Jesus said to do which is what he did. Preach good news to the poor. Release the captives. Keep praying for the sick. Keep trusting, believing, hoping, even though some people you pray for die. You just keep... You, that's the hard thing. It's, it's living in that tension. It's keep loving and serving and giving when people, people turn on you. People, people won't make things right with each other. You just keep loving. You love your enemies, he said. Do good to those that hate you. You just keep... Love is more powerful than hate. Good is more powerful than evil. The kingdom of God is more powerful than the kingdom of darkness. And you have to live in that reality every day when you get out of bed in the morning. You just got to live in that reality. And it's so freaking hard sometimes. And there, aren't, there are days when I just want to say, that's it, I've had it. I don't need this anymore. I'm done. But then I'm like Peter and I go, well, what am I going to do? You have the words of eternal life. I got nowhere else to go. And I don't. I'm not talking about a job. I'm talking about my life. What, what else is there? Yeah, the world sucks. But you know what? The world has always sucked. What's different now? Social media just gives us more information about what was always true. It's true. So... Oscar Coleman was a uh, theologian who lived in, and wrote right after the Second World War. I'll wrap this up with this, because I think this is going to help some of you today who are dealing with this tension. Uh, and the Second World ended, he was writing in the 50s, and he was reflecting on this truth of the already and the not yet, and other great 
great theologians like George Eldon Ladd had written about it, really influenced the vineyard. And the vineyard really, Wimber and others really took this on as, as a way to, to, to believe for healing and work for healing and still deal with the reality of suffering and, and, and live in that tension and, and avoid over-realized eschatology. That's a fancy word for saying, oh, everything is great, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, isn't life wonderful, on one hand, and under-realized eschatology on the other hand, where just life sucks and what's the point and I give up and everybody else sucks except me and I'm not sure about me. And so he was reflecting on this already not yet reality, and he thought about the Second World War. How many know when D-Day was? Anybody can tell me the date? June 6, 1944. June 6, 1944. And when was VE Day? Yeah, we're just not quite so sure, are we? It's true, isn't it? Why do we know when D-Day was? Well, what was D-Day? It was the greatest invasion in human history when the Allies got together and they knew that the only way that they were going to take Hitler, take this war, is they had to get a beachhead on European soil. So with planes and ships and smoke screens and everything they could, they made that. Great movies have been made about it. They landed a beachhead on, uh, on the shores of Normandy. And, and we, why do we call it D-Day? D-Day means decision day. It means the day that the war was won. It was the day when the decision changed. And yet we know that the, the war didn't end for until VE Day. But there was something about D-Day that shifted everything. And Coleman was thinking about this and he began to get excited because he realized that when Jesus, through Jesus' death, through his life, his, the incarnation, by the way, was a victory. That God became human. That was like invasion. That was like D-Day. And then encapsulated in life's death, his preaching, his resurrection, and his ascension, it was D-Day. I love what Gordon Fee, the way he said it is, Jesus hung on the cross, and when he cried out, it is Finished. Oh, man, I don't know if this Anglican church has ever had so much yelling. It is finished. He's hanging on the cross, and he says, it's finished. I love what the way Gordon Fee says it. Nobody else says it like Gordon Fee. He said, when Jesus said that, God planted a flag on, human, on, the, on planet Earth, and he said, this earth is mine. Belongs to me. D-Day. God planted a beachhead. Now the amazing thing about D-Day is, is that they said there was kind of a mopping up operation that had to happen up. We call it mopping but actually more people died after D-Day, between D-Day and VE Day than any other part of the war. And since Christ's death and resurrection, there's a mopping up where God says the victory's been won. Injustice is defeated. Cancer is defeated. Death has been defeated. I love the post-resurrection stories of Jesus coming into the upper room. He says, hey, guys. He walks through the wall. He says, touch my wounds. I'm real, even though I just walked through that wall. And then he says, do you have any fish? And they feed him some fish, and then he goes out through the wall, and the fish doesn't go. <laughs> it goes right out through the wall with him. That's like 
That's freaky, man. But that's the reality we live in, in the already and not yet. There are angels around you every day. The Spirit of God is with you. God is at work. We just need our eyes touched, our ears touched, so we can see and hear. D-Day is the cross. V-E-Day is the day of the Lord when his second coming. But in between, we're involved. We're engaged with him in announcing the reign of God is here. Good news to the poor. So why Nazareth? I think it serves as a warning to the people of God called to be a servant community who out of fear develop an attitude of entitlement resulting in a posture of separation and isolation. Us versus them from the very ones they've been called to serve. I think there's a warning there that Luke picks Nazareth because it was the first place that Jesus was rejected because he began to show inclusion to the Gentiles and he, he offended them by that. So through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the coming ages come crashing into the present and we exist as a community to partner with God in the renewal of all things through the power of the Holy Spirit. So just some questions. These are in your bulletin as well. To reflect on your life where you've been ex experiencing disillusion, where you've kind of been defaulting to the not yet and lost vision. Think about the factors that have contributed to this. Disappointments. Maybe prayers that you didn't think were answered. And what is God's invitation for you for sustainable revisioning? Maybe have somebody pray with you about that. Take some time in your journals to reflect on it. Get some prayer today. And I asked Kathleen to bring some oil. I just feel some of you want to, want to get a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. And when God says, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit, how do you do it? I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that when you try to put it down to a formula, God says, yeah, right. <laughs> Because God's a relational God. God's a God of intuition and inspiration. And so I just say, ask. Just ask God to fill you. And maybe today anointing with oil is, is a way for a fresh contact of faith uh, to be filled with the Spirit. Just had a quick, a quick word about feet. Um, two facets. Anybody that is suffering with a foot problem or foot disease? I see those oh, eyebrows. Sandra. We need to pray for Sandra. And, yeah. and this, so that could be a bunion. It could be a toe fungus as well as a problem in the foot. Just felt like the Holy Spirit's really on that today for anointing. And then the second aspect was people that use their feet for a specific ministry. Like, I really feel it's for you, Lori. I just feel like I'd like to, if, if with your permission, anoint your feet. Because I feel you have a, a gift and a calling for your jigging. That God wants to really use that anointing to take you into places and give you a ministry that is going to open wonderful doors for the gospel. So, and uh, this could be something not so pronounced as dancing, but it could be where God is specifically calling you to walk a different way.
that you're frustrated because you're walking a certain way. It's not about repentance so much. It's just that the Lord wants to kind of move you into a slightly different way of walking. Michael, I feel that God wants to do that for you today. Because you've been frustrated about certain things. But if you just maybe see a different aspect, how the Lord wants to lead you, it could remove you from that whole arena of frustration. Because he's going to show you, no, don't walk here. Go here. Align yourself up with these people or this organization. So two aspects there. All right, let's stand together. Apologies for going over a bit today. It's your fault. You just pulled it out of me. No, no, just. But we need to go get our kids in about five minutes. So if just be aware of that. But if you need prayer, and just take some time to fellowship with snacks at the back. And Bob, did you have a question? Okay, I, th I think we're going to have to wrap it up. I'm so sorry, but yeah. But, um, I think time-wise, I've, I've just blown the time, so I'm so sorry. So Holy Spirit, just come. Just come, Lord. And would you revive our faith? Would you revive our hope? Would you revive our vision? Would you heal our blinded eyes? And I bless you this week with this uh, ad admonition from Paul from the book of Romans that may the God of hope fill you with all hope in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I bless you to walk in that hope today in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.